Good morning, everyone. Um, we will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, and you can follow along on the screen. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We continue on in 1 Peter chapter 2. One, I pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a, a gracious God. We pray that as we reflect on your word today, you'll give us clarity of understanding, but also that you'll... Uh, address our hearts and our minds as we reflect on how we are to live for you. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, less relevant to some of us than others. But as a child, you ask that question all the time, aren't you? What do you want to be uh, when you grow up? Now, when I was just uh, very young, my parents told me I wanted to be a fire engine, okay? Not not a fireman, but a fire engine, okay? I was philosophically and ontologically challenged as a child. And then as time went on, when I was in primary school, my great desire was to be a professional sports person, and that endured into high school. Then uh, when I got to the end of high school, I uh, graduated, went to university, studied law, I became a Christian, and became a pastor, right? That's that's the way it all sort of unfolded for me. You'll know this week that the SACE results came out, uh, all the Year 12 results, lots of people in the paper talking about what they wanted to do, you know, the careers, the uh, courses they wanted to do at university, the careers they wanted to do after that. And people talk a lot about, in our world, the idea of vocation. Uh, Vocation is quite different from a job. Uh, you know, a job is something where you earn money to put food on the table, keep the creditors at bay. That's the way jobs work. Vocations are much more intrinsically tied up with who you are as a person, I think. And you know that when you go to a social setting. You know, you, you get to meet someone new, and often what you'll say is, um, what do you do, right? What do you do? And the person will often respond, I am. They don't, they don't tell you what they do, they tell you who they are. I am a secretary, an accountant, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a, you know, that, that there's something about vocation that is tied to who you are as a person. Okay, the whole question of vocation is what we're talking about. When we turn to the uh, New Testament letter of 1 Peter, we come today to a hinge 
passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And it speaks to our core identity. Okay, that's what it's all about. It gives the followers of Jesus effectively some vocational counselling. So let's uh, get into it as we see what God has called us to be as his people. The key to Christian vocation, uh, it starts with understanding who Jesus is and with what he's accomplished. Now, as we heard before, there's a lot of building imagery in this section of the Bible. You go to uh, chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. Okay, we're being told here that Jesus is a living stone chosen by God. But as you hear that, the the question that should immediately rise in your mind is, uh, how can Jesus be chosen by God? I mean, in what sense? Isn't Jesus eternally God? So in what sense can he be chosen? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, it talks there about believers as being chosen, uh, God calling us into his family, but surely not Jesus. So what's it talking about? Well, it becomes clear when you look at the other part of the description. Jesus is described as this living stone. Funny combination of ideas, isn't it? We normally don't associate life with stones. But that's what he's described as. It's imagery from the Old Testament. In uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 6, it quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, the Old Testament prophet. You see it there. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now here the, the prophet Isaiah, he was ripping into God's people because they thought that as a result of living in the promised land or having the temple in Jerusalem, that somehow they were safeguarded in their relationship with God. Yeah, relationship with God was just a, a guaranteed thing and everything would be okay. But, but Isaiah was saying, your hearts are a long way from God and the temple's not going to work as a good luck charm for you guys. Right? It's, this is not the way it's going, going to operate. Isaiah predicted the destruction of this temple, but he said that he would erect a new temple, uh, one with a lasting foundation. You read it there, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, I want you to notice here that the cornerstone uh, is referred to as a him. It's a person, not it. The one who trusts in him, this cornerstone, will never be put to shame. And of course, as we heard, it's a metaphor. It's talking about Jesus. And Jesus, at this point, we're told he is chosen in the sense that he is God's appointed one. He is God's appointed person for the salvation of the whole of humanity, chosen in that sense. You see that played out in all sorts of different spots. If you went to um, John chapter 2, one of the Gospels, uh, we'd see there that Jesus drove people out of this temple in Jerusalem because they were ripping people off. They are trying to make money out of people who are entering into the temple. Uh, he's challenged about his authority to kick people out of the temple. And this is what he says, John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, destroy this 
temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, the, Jesus at this point is standing in front of the temple effectively and it is a huge edifice. It had taken decades to build and in terms of the space it occupied, if you think about the uh, Adelaide Oval precinct, a few of us have been watching that just the last couple of days, right? you think about that as a precinct, uh, that's roughly the size of the temple location. It, it was really quite a mammoth building, decades to build. Jesus says, standing in front, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And the, the religious leaders around him are going, you must be bonkers, Jesus, right? You have no idea about building technology, obviously, you know, because you, you can't possibly do it. But then in John chapter 2, verse 21, we get this comment. But the temple he'd spoken about was his body. See, by his death and resurrection on the third day, Jesus provides the platform for people to be saved. He is that temple. He's a precious living stone. Verse 4, chosen by God and precious to him. Or in verse 6, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Or in verse 7, to you who believe this stone is precious. Christians over the years have made a point of building fairly impressive buildings to meet in, you know, different uh, cathedrals. Um, some of you will know on the Trinity Network we have a building in the city, uh, which is the oldest church building in Adelaide. People started meeting in, in 1838. It is made of impressive stones. You know, it is that sort of building. But can I say at the end of the day, uh, it is just a, just a building? And believers, followers of Jesus, do not treasure buildings made of dead stones. Well, we never do, right? We treasure the living stone, Jesus. He is precious and central to us as we meet. Then I want you to notice how this building imagery changes. Now you pick it up in verses 7 and 8. Now, do you who believe this stone is Precious. And what Peter goes on to do here is he quotes twice more from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. Uh, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Isaiah 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, let me just pick up two things uh, that lie behind the purpose for quoting from these parts of the Old Testament. Jesus' popularity is... Uh, sorry, Jesus' value is never based on his popularity. Uh, they took a vote in the first century and they executed him. That, that was the result of what happened there. Uh, he is, we read in verse 4, he's rejected by human beings. But you understand at this point it is God's opinion that matters. God says Jesus is precious and foundational and therefore we should come to the same view. And then the second thing I just want to highlight here is that Jesus was and always will be divisive. Uh, verse 8. We're told there that the cornerstone will cause people to stumble and fall. 
if you do not trust Jesus, then you are disagreeing with God, the creator of the universe, about the core purpose for your life. That, that's what we're being told here. You see, God is not some glorified life coach that is trying to help you achieve the goals that you have for your life. Uh, God is the life coach who tells you what the purpose for your life actually is. And he has the right to do that because he made you and he provides for your salvation. If you make anything else the foundation or the centrepiece for your life, then you invite the judgment of God on your head. Uh, That's the clear message that we're hearing here. Now, can I say, I, I fully get that saying that is totally inflammatory to 21st century Westerners. I can understand the way this works. But the point being made is that there is no way to have a relationship with God except through Jesus. And this tells us a huge amount about how we go about building our church, how that works. Uh, churches, you know, like our church, our church is not founded on the fact that we're a Bible-teaching church. That's not our foundation. Uh, we're not founded on our creative evangelistic strategies. Um, Often people will say to me, oh, the church is in the Trinity Network, we can see that they're growing. What's your secret? You know, and I feel like I'm being asked to be Colonel Sanders, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, 11 different herbs and spices, you know, it's sort of like there's some secret sauce that operates here. Um, It's not like that. We're not founded on the fact that we're organised well, and you might not think we are anyway. We're not founded on the fact we have inspiring young pastors like Luke Dahlenberg or less inspiring old pastors like me. You know, like it's not, that's not the foundation for our church. Now get, get me right. It, they are good things. It's a good thing to have the scriptures in the middle of things, faithful preaching, singing we enjoy, uh, joining in together. Uh, but friends, we're a, we're a church that treasures Jesus. Why? Well, if you went on 1 Peter chapter 2 to verse 24, this is what it says. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or over to chapter 3 verse 18. Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring it to God. You see, Jesus is the only one who has given his life so that each one of us can be forgiven and have relationship with the living God. No one else has done that. No one else can link us to the God of heaven except Jesus. He's made it possible for us to know God. So we treasure him. That's that's at the heart of our church together. This passage, having focused our attention on the central place of Jesus, uh, we're then told, given who Jesus is, this is who you are as God's people. He starts to move on onto our vocation as believers. And again, the temple or the building image is used to help us get who we are. 
Uh, we're described as living stones in a spiritual house. Pick it up in verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Okay, today we're meeting in a, uh, a building that's made of dead materials, you know, uh, uh, wood and glass and steel and probably a whole lot of other things that uh, go into making up this building. But, but the essential character of those materials is that they are dead, right? They, they're lifeless. We will head home after this meeting and we will live active lives in all sorts of different ways. But you know what the building will be doing? Nothing, right? Buildings don't do anything. Right? They just sort of sit here and provide for other possibilities. God's people... We're described as living stones that meet in a dead building. In the Old Testament, the temple functioned as the the meeting point between God and his people, but no more. That's not the case anymore. We don't go to a place or a building to meet God. You didn't come here to get close to God this morning as if the building achieves that. God's no more present here than he was in your lounge room before you left. Uh, do, do you understand? That's, that's the point. The building doesn't guarantee that sort of presence of God. We are the living stones that God has brought together. And God dwells among his living stones, his people. The building's actually not an irrelevance because it's helpful to keep the sun off our heads and keep cool, but it's, it's not got no spiritual function for us today. And the thing is, God is constantly adding to his building. He's adding living stones to his house. On Thursday, one of the um, other pastors around the network uh, rang me up, and he was so excited. Right? He, was just, he said, I just had to ring up and tell somebody. And he'd been meeting with a guy called Andrew for two years, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, He said, today, Thursday, he gave his life to Jesus and became a Christian. And uh, it was just so exciting. A living stone being added to the house. And that's what God is doing in his world, even today. See, Christianity is not flavour of the month here in Australia right now. But today, there are two being Christians... Uh, across the globe. It's an extraordinary number, isn't it? But the experts tell me that the number of Christians across the globe is growing at three and a half times the rate of population growth across across the um, the world. Isn't that amazing? So the, what that means is, yeah, statistically under the law of averages, three and a half thousand people have become Christians during the time I've, I've been speaking this morning, somewhere around the planet. Uh, it's just the most, that's what God is doing, calling people to himself because that's what's at the centre of his plans. I just think it gives us perspective. See, if you were to ask your neighbours what they thought about you heading off to church today, um, they might say, oh, good for you, that's great, you know, uh, nice that you've got a social club you belong to that meets at a weird time on a Sunday morning, you know, but, you know, like, they, they probably wouldn't be all that impressed, necessarily. But understand, as we meet here today, 
not because we're impressive, because as I look around, none of you look all that impressive, right? And uh, you're probably thinking the same as you look at me too. Not because we're impressive, but we're actually at the heart of God's eternal purposes as he builds his family. It is an amazing reality. It goes on and talks about us being not just living stones, but we're described as priests. Verse 5, you're a holy priesthood offering up sacrifices acceptable to God. Or in verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Now, I grew up in a, a Roman Catholic family and I remember my mother, I reckon I was about 10, and she asked me if I'd ever thought about becoming a priest, right? And let me say, that was the last thing in the world I thought I would ever want to do with my life, having uh, observed what I thought they, they did. Yet the, the idea here is that the identity and vocation of every person who calls themselves Christian is that you are a priest, by definition. Now, it's picking up in the language of the Old Testament. If I went back to Exodus chapter 19, uh, listen to what's, what's said there. God's speaking to his people as he gathers them and he says, If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now in the Old Testament, these priests, they offered sacrifices in the temple. They were like the, um, the middlemen between God and his people, particularly when it comes to comes to the forgiveness of sins. Uh, but there's no need for that sort of priest today. No need, because all believers have direct access to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, we're all in that position. In that sense, we're all priests. But also, it ties up with our, our vocation, who we are. So I was ordained and Anglican minister at the end of 1987, right? Uh, now, can I say that's not when I became a priest? I became a priest in 1978 because that's when I became a Christian. You see, when you become a Christian, you get ordained. That is what we're being told here. Now, I get the fact that it's not a great opening line at a party, you know, like, uh, you know, Colin McCracken, you know, is at a party meeting new people. I say, oh, what do you do during the week? Instead of Colin saying, I'm retired, he says, I'm a priest, right? It's just a little clunky, you know, probably not your opening line, I, I suspect. But understand the intention. That's exactly who we are as we represent God in his world. And we're to offer as priests, verse 5, spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are they? Well, you pick up the idea later on in the passage in verses 9 to 10. We declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, this is the language of worship. It's, it's party language. Uh, and it does include what we do when we meet. 
Uh, I think a number of you have said how hard it's been in lockdown, especially when it comes to singing. You love meeting with God's people and singing together. It doesn't work either by yourself or necessarily with the other person in the room. Uh, for Sue, she's got a great voice. It works for her. It doesn't work so well for me. I just listen to Sue. You know, it's just I like to be drowned out. That's helpful for me and for you. You know, it's just just the way life is. It picks up on that language of when we meet, as we pray, as we sing, as we say a creed together or read scripture together or whatever it is, praising God. And Peter was writing to believers who are under enormous pressure, and I suspect were at great risk as they met together Sunday by Sunday. For us, well, the pressure's more subtle. I think it's we've got a freedom to meet together like this, but the temptation is to be very private about who we are during the week as followers of Jesus. But see, praising God or offering him spiritual sacrifices, it's not limited to an hour a week or a morning a week. But it's tied up with the way we live all of life, 24-7. Once we were spiritually lost, we didn't know God, but now we've received mercy and it affects everything. If we had time, we'd work through the rest of 1 Peter and you can do this yourself, but you'd pick up on the way in which knowing God affects all of what you do, from verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2, it talks about the way we relate to authorities in government, um, how we relate to them. Verse 18 on of chapter 2, it talks about slaves and masters, but there's a lot to learn for our employment relationships and our work. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, talks about how to worship God in your marriage. Isn't that interesting? Uh, from verse 12 of chapter 2, it talks about living good lives among the pagans. Unbelievers, how do you actually extol the virtues of God in a world where people don't know Jesus at all? And I think it's just saying, how do you do this in your neighbourhood? How do you do it in your family with people who don't know God? How do you do it in every context in which you find yourself? This passage is all about Jesus at the foundation of life and the foundation of our identity. Uh, There are some films that stick in your mind and some lines from films that stick in your mind. These will probably age me a bit, but I remember Clint Eastwood in Sudden Impact. He had that classic line. Anyone remember what it was? Go ahead, make my day. Go ahead, make my day. Everyone will know it. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in The uh, Terminator his classic line was, I'll be back. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. But yeah, that's right. You, you sort of remember that line, don't you? Uh, but you know, I think possibly the most iconic and culture-shaping film of the last 20 years was Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man. Uh, released in 2002, Spider-Man, actor Peter Parker. In that film, he um, quotes something that he learned from his uncle Ben. Right, who sounds very wise to me. The great line, with great power comes great responsibility. Great power comes great responsibility. Can I say, if I was paraphrasing this bit of 1 Peter that we've been looking at today, it would go something like this. With great privilege 
comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Some of you will know um, the name Sam Kerr. She is the captain of the Matildas, right, the Australian women's soccer team. Now, they're tipped to go places if the Tokyo Olympics actually happen. Uh, people are saying they could go right the way through and maybe win a gold medal. I want you to imagine that the Tokyo Olympics not only go ahead, but the Matildas make the gold medal playoff round and, uh, yeah, we're ten minutes before the team's about to run out onto the field and they can't find Sam Kerr, the captain, Okay. So they give her a call on a mobile and she says, look, I figured I might never get to Tokyo ever again, so I've taken the day off to go and visit some beautiful ornamental gardens, you know. Uh, Like, if you're selected for Australia, right, for this sort of match, you turn up. That's the reality. Now, can I say, if you're a Christian... You've been chosen by God and he has poured out his grace and mercy on you. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Each day, if you are a called person, if you're a Christian, you have the extraordinary privilege of turning up and representing the one who's given you life and hope and future and a sense of who you are in the eternal scheme of things. Can I encourage each of us just to make sure that every day we turn up, we keep turning up, remembering who we are in the providence of God. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this part of your word, part of your word that drives home to us the very central nature of Jesus at the the heart of our life together. Help us to never stray away from that. We know that there are lots of things we can drift into and find exciting or interesting. Uh, But Father, we pray we'll just keep reflecting on all Jesus has done for us. And Father, we thank you for the clarity about what that means for our relationship with you. And we are priests, living stones, uh, people that you've built into the structure of relationships that will endure for eternity. Relationship with you, relationship with one another and a relationship to this world. And Father, we pray that sense of being privileged, having clarity, would you shape everything we do? And Father, help us as we turn up every day for life, to keep remembering the one that we represent as we live that life. And Father, we pray we'll live for your glory and honour and praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.